Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 213. This will be a special Shavuos Matan Teda edition, being that next uh, Sunday is the first day of Shavuos, which goes this year straight from Shabbos, which will be out of Shavuos, and then going into Sunday, and then uh, Monday, two days of Shavuos, which of course is the great event perhaps the greatest event in all of history, 3,330 years ago, literally to the day, to the year, the year 2,448 from creation was Martin Tata, so now we're 3,330 years later, the event that changed all of history. So let's talk about that in the context of Chassidus, applied what Chassidus tells us about Martin Tata. Everybody knows and this is basic knowledge in the secular world even, that Sinai was a major event, the event where God gave his mandate called the Torah, the Bible, to the Jewish people, to the entire world. The Talmud even says, the Gemara says, that the entire world sensed it because the birds stopped chirping, there was a certain airy silence. And when the nations of the world came running to their prophet Bilam, and asked him, why is there such a silence? He said, because Hashem Hashem God is giving is giving his teda, his mandate to the Jewish people. He's blessing them with shalom. The teda come to make peace in this world. And one of the explanations given why the whole world had to feel it is because the Torah, Matan Teda, was not just for Jews. It was meant to permeate and transform the world. So one of the main chidushim, Matan Teda, maybe the biggest one, Chassidus explains based on a medrash. The medrash says that before Sinai, before Matan Teda, there was Exeda. Exeda has double meaning here. Exeda is a decree, but Exeda could also be a schism, a split, between Elyenim and Tachtenim, that which was above and that which is below, in simple terms between spirit and matter, between heaven and earth. Elyenim that which was above did not come down below. Spirit remained in the world of spirit. Heaven remained heaven and did not affect the Tachtenim, which is earth, in a permanent fashion. And and that which was below did not climb up and reach the spirit. Basically, it was the split and the decree that separated between matter and spirit. By Matan Teda, it says, this decree, this schism was was, was um, breached. Basically, it was... Uh, um, they're too connected. When it says, that God descended on Mount Sinai, that was El Yenim came down the mountain. And Moshe, Moshe Omar Alei said to Moshe to climb up the mountain, that was Tachtenim going up. And when Moshe met Hashem on Har Sinai, that was the joining, the fusion of El Yenim and Tachtenim. And that forever changed existence. Why? Because that gave the power that you can actually spiritualize the material world. Until then, that was not possible. Achsidus brings Avram Avinu and Yitzchak and Yaakov, they all they fulfilled all the Teda, but in Ruchnis, not in Gashmis. The only mitzvah where you say that was an exception was mitzvah bris mila. That was a physical mitzvah. The rest was all done by Ruchnis because they didn't have the power to achieve that. Why? Because think about logically. The material world and the spiritual worlds, or Ruchnis and Gashmis, are two different domains, very antithetical to one another. One is mortal, one is tangible, 
The other is immortal and ethereal. Matan gave the power to join the two that every time we do a good deed, we do a mitzvah, we now can transform the material world. Not just we do the mitzvah and it doesn't affect the existence, but you actually transform, you release this divine and spiritual energy within matter when you do a mitzvah with it, and it transforms it forever. So in a sense, you could say it's the original E equals MC squared. Energy equal matter. So though Einstein discovered it later in physics, but conceptually by Matan Teda, and also practically, Matan Teda gave that power. However, obviously, as he explains in Tanya chapter 36, it would still need now our work to make it a permanent feature. We have the power to do so. And by Matan Teda, it affected all of existence that way. But now comes the work to actually do the mitzvahs and actually permeate and infuse existence and integrate it with spirituality. And when Mashiach comes, as he explains in Tanya, will be was a taste of it. And then it will be a permanent feature. That the divine will be seen through the lens even of the material. But that comes through the thousands of years of work, literally 3,330 years. Why is this so vital to us, to each one of us personally? Because it tells us, uh, answers a tremendous question. A person could say, you know what? I'm a simple person. I live in this material world. I have a physical body. I'm a mundane human being. I barely struggled to survive, to make ends meet. What can be expected already of a mortal, of a flawed, mortal, physical human being whose main preoccupation and main focus and, the, and what we feel instinctively is our physicality. Yes, we have times we have spiritual inspiration, a transcendent moment. Some of us are wired to be a little more spiritual. But at the end of the day, we're physical beings, at times having a spiritual experience. How high can one reach? Comes Matan Teda and says, no. Every person, man, woman, or child, in any circumstance, has now a power. A power that was given from Anoichi, Hashem Elekecha, Anoichi, a power that is higher than spirit and matter, that can give the power to fuse the two. So when you do an act, you actually have the power to change the universe. It creates a ripple effect. It's forever. Now, why don't we see it? So this explains the famous example of Munich Bekufsa. It's imagine doing something, achieving something, but right now it's still stored inside of a chest. The Rebbe explains that not only do we have it in the chest, but we also have the key to the chest and we can open it any moment. When the language of Chassidus, the Rebbe brings it in the first Maimar, Bosselagani, Tovshin Yeralef, from the Rebbe Marash, and other places, that when you do a mitzvah, a good deed, it releases energy. And their energy is as if it's like in a chest, waiting to be released. So you already release the energy, but it's being stored, so to speak, in Atzillus. And when Gula will come, we will, it's like opening the chest, and will erupt in a tremendous a positive explosion. Of, uh, that will transform all of existence. So the transformation has already happened. However, physicalized, we can't see it. So it's like in the chest, hidden in the chest as an example. But it's there. So we, the world has become more refined over the years. And this comes to a personal lesson to each one of us. And this is a tremendous lesson because it really gives the significance to every act you do. Every positive act you do, every positive attitude changes you and the world in a real way, in a permanent way. So in healing, or in any type of growth, 
That's a tremendous lesson to know that when you do something, you actually have the ability to change something and not be cynical or skeptical or sarcastic. Is it really affecting or not affecting? It also tells you the other side of things, that when you do something, you have a negative attitude and your attitude is depressed. It also does not actualize the potential that we are able to do by transforming this material world and starting with our bodies and our little chalkebeel in the corner of our world toward the purpose for which we were created. This is one of many, many, many lessons of Matan Teda and uh, something that we can all take out from personally. I would also add, as a, count, as a cross-reference, I spoke about Matan Teda also in episode 68, 118, and 164. One more point to add, being that Pasha Bamidbar, the beginning of the fourth book of Bamidbar, and Pasha Bamidbar and Sefer Bamidbar begins to be read always before Shavuos, and that is, the, what's the connection? So, of course, this literal connection is Bamidbar Sinai, in the Sinai wilderness, which was, of course, Har Sinai was the early part of the journey in Midbar Sinai. But what's the significance of Midbar? It seems like also an odd name to give a name for a chapter, especially for an entire book. It means a wilderness, a desert. So the Alter Rebbe explains that Midbar has, like anything, has on one hand a negative connotation. Lo Yoshev Adam Sam, Sham. It's not a place of civilization. People don't reside or, or dwell there. On the other hand, he says, it means it's also higher than human beings. Le can also mean that it's lower than civilization, or it could be higher than civilization, beyond, meaning defying structure and a transcendent state. Le Adam, that Adam belongs in a particular defined parameters. And Le Yoshev Adam is midbar, comes from, is able to access a level that's higher than structure. So we have both meanings in it. And that's why Matan Teda was there, because Matan Teda was drawing down into the structure from beyond structure. That's why you have the ability to transform the structure. You can only have that power, something outside of the structure. Medrash, it says a fascinating thing, that why was the Teda given in a midbar, in a wilderness? Seems like a strange place to give the Teda. Chem de Gnuza, God's precious hidden treasure. It's the most hidden delight. You want to give someone a special gift. What do you do? You take them to a nice place, a nice ambiance, and you give it to them. There are many beautiful cities in the world. Yerushalayim is one. There are other cities. Hashem took them, dafke to a wilderness, uh, where people don't know, a dry, arid land filled with, uh, with uh, destructive forces. Must have been who knows how hot. It was not recorded, but it must have been very hot that morning of Matan Teda 3,330 years ago. It was never recorded because obviously they probably transcended and didn't even feel it. And uh, why take them to a place like that? So many reasons given. One of them is because Midbar is Le'yashav Adam Shom. It's a place where it's not civilized, meaning no one lives there. Therefore, the Abishtah wanted to give the Teda in a place where nobody can lay claim of, for it. Had he given it in a city like Jerusalem or another city, so the Jerusalem, till this day, can say, you know what? You have to pay us royalties every time you need to study some Teda or open up a Teda. Shem gave it namofkim hefker. Hefker by din, but din is if you lose something, an object in a city near someone's house, it most likely belongs to someone. And there's the different conditions, whether how you have to return a veda in these types of, whether it's a simon or not a simon. But if you lose something in a wilderness, a wilderness is not identifiable. Nobody lives there. And mokim hefker, therefore, it's shaykh to everyone. The Eibishter wanted to make an emphasis that the truth of teda, nobody can charge your royalty. 
doesn't belong to anyone. It's God's gift to mankind. It's God's gift to the human race. It's God's gift. The inheritance of every Jew. And nobody can lay claim and say, because I taught it to you, it's, it belongs to me or partially to me, or you have to pay me royalties for it. Another tremendous lesson in truth. Many people look for inspiration. They go to teachers, they go to gurus, they go to different uh, mashpim, or whatever it may be. The key thing to look for in a teacher is the humility that they're conveying to you, not their wisdom, the wisdom of God. And that was given to every human being equally. So it's also a tremendous lesson in personal access, that we have that personal access precisely because it was given in a place like that in order to emphasize that it's not diluted and it's not filtered through any human being's opinions or any human being's um, rights or property and so on and so forth. There's no copyright on the Torah. That allows each of us to access it, which is also a necessary lesson when you're looking to apply these ideas to our lives. You want to make sure that you have them in an undiluted, unfiltered way and you access the original and the integrity is maintained and never compromised. So we always read by Midbar before we go into Matan Teda, literally this year, right from Shabbos straight into Shavuos. And we have these messages among many others that as I referred to in the earlier episodes where I discussed this topic. I'll use this opportunity to also say, to announce the, the um, ability to pre- present and submit any question anonymously at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, where you have the forum completely anonymous. If you want a response, we need to, uh, you need, uh, we, or you want to receive something that's mentioned here, some document, a letter, or some other reference or resource, please include your email address because that's the only way we can communicate with you. As far as other archives available there as well, you can have all the archives of the 212 previous episodes, plus the hundreds and hundreds of essays that were written now already around in the fourth year of the essay contest. Beautiful and powerful and, and uh, I would even say life-transforming essays that are also available to be seen there at my life at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. There's also a process, I also want to encourage you, especially if you go into Mountain Teda, to please help us continue this program and continue expanding it through your generous support. This is a community-supported program. It's a free program. Much work goes into it, a lot of effort, a lot of time. So please make a donation, a generous donation at MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. It's an excellent way to honor a loved one or memorialize someone that has passed on in, uh, and connected to these programs. Another element of Matan is of course something that Rebbe emphasized time and again based on the Medrash that when Hashem, when God wanted to give the Teda, he asked for a guarantor. A guarantor. You know, giving you such a gift, he wanted someone to guarantee it. So the Jews people, the Talmud, the Medrash says they offered first uh, the, uh, the, the Skenim, the sages, the elderly. That was not sufficient. The Nevi'im, the prophets, no. The Ovis, no, there's different nuschais of what who they offered. Finally, the last thing was they offered, they said, Our children will be our guarantors. And that's what God accepted. Why? Because all the others are great scholars and they're surely dedicated to Teda, but guarantee for future is specifically the children. The Gemara says in Bob Metziah, the crown of the elders, of the grandparents, as their grandchildren. Why? Because when you know, when you teach one generation, when you have children and you teach them, 
then you know that you've achieved, teach them. But when your children have children, then you know that that the Teda will perpetually be perpetual. Because you know that your students, your children have become parents, and that way it will continue ad infinitum. It's not necessarily the Peshat and the Medish itself, because the Medish talks about children. But it adds... Um, adds emphasis, the idea of the guaranteeing something that will perpetuate because it's being taught to the children and the children are the guarantors. Which is one of the reasons that in Tov Shin Mem, in 1980, the Rebbe then instituted that every child, every man, woman, and child, including newborns, should be brought to go to shul on the first day of Shavuos to hear the Ten Commandments. As the Medrash says, that we hear the Sarasad it's as if we're standing by Mount Tana. Because bring the guarantors and they should all be there, including the guarantors of the Teda. And this became a worldwide custom, a beautiful custom, which of course I am mentioning in order to encourage the fulfillment of this directive of bringing even the youngest children to shul to hear and recreate the monumental events and the awesome events that happened 3,330 years ago. Since we're talking about children and young people, so it was brought to my attention that recently there have been different articles, but especially one heart-wrenching one addressing the struggles and the challenges of our teenagers. So I decided to dedicate, between to this Shavuos special program, a chunk of, uh, of this uh, episode toward this topic. So, that, so someone wrote, a teenager wrote an article called My Teenage Friends Are Drowning. And uh, so we will address that in the context of what can we do. So on COL, was a, this article was published. A Lubavitch teenager exposes a troubling reality that teachers and even parents aren't aware of. It's titled, it's authored by a worried and appreciative teenager. I'll read it, even though it's not so short, but I think it's worthwhile reading because it captures a real challenge and what better way and better time to speak about it as we prepare for Montana, what we can do to help our own youth who are the future and the guarantors through the challenges, that unique challenges, or maybe not unique, but challenges that they face in our time. I'm a 12th grade girl, pretty Hasidic, typical fun teenager who is certainly not oblivious to the world around you and me. I'm extremely involved in my high school and I've given up a lot of my time to improve my high school through geo programs. Aches, Fabringens, I'm just trying my best to be a role model in school. I am good friends with people from different upbringings within Chabad. My concern is that there has recently been a major drop in the firm standards of teenagers, regardless of their external appearance. 100% sneers or black hats and white shirts. The new reality is that boys and girls are mingling and their interaction seems to be getting worse with time. All you need is a username on Instagram or Snapchat and you're instantly connected to any boy. There's some with enough self-control who leave it at a phone call and short text conversations or a chat in a public place, but there are many without this much self-control. These boys and girls are interacting for the sake of having fun. They are not looking for the person they want to have a lifelong relationship with, as were the old days. They are doing it to fill a void. Recently, someone opened a public Instagram account where from people send confessions, quote-unquote, about what they have done or are doing. It is absolutely heartbreaking to see what other boys and girls around my age are doing with themselves. You can never tell by looks where people were two hours ago, or how many girls or boys they've interacted with that month. The anonymous person who runs the account attempts to give advice, but the results of success are probably little or close to none. 
These teens are seeing that people in the same group and community are doing the same thing and are being comforted, telling themselves that maybe it's not as bad as they thought because so many other people are doing the same thing. The bigger issue is that some have crossed the red line that no from teenager should ever cross. I'm talking about emotional relationships and even physical ones. It has come to a point that even the girls and boys who are seemingly Hasidish are succumbing to this struggle. These teenagers that are struggling and acting on their desires are often not only the stereotypical troublemakers, these boys and girls are role models for your children. They are their counselors, chavrusas, friends, and classmates. They are being expected to serve as dugma chayas, that's a living example, in different places such as day camps. These interactions cause these teenagers to question other fundamentals to their Yiddishkeit. It also causes many other issues to leak into our communities, such as drugs and smoking. Issues like drugs and smoking start a vicious cycle that is much harder to deal with. I, as well as many of my friends, have worked so hard to overcome my struggle despite what's happening around me. I'm just one person in the big scheme of things, and I'm at loss for how to help start solving this problem. The only thing I know I can do at this stage of my life is improving myself and being a good role model and support for my friends. I'm not writing to out anyone or get responses. I'm writing so that Rabbeim, principals, teachers, parents, and Mashpiim take action. It feels like you're not aware of the worsening problem. We are struggling and drowning in this terrible gulf in front of your blind eyes. I hope you will not start a hunt to find out the already struggling teenagers and kick them out of school. We are in need of some serious inreach done with love and care and validation. We need people who will look at every child and ensure that she is emotionally, physically, and mentally healthy. Then we need leaders who will ensure every child is happy. It is only then that we can expect these children to recognize and appreciate Yiddishkeit and what it has to offer. To the caring and loving parents, teachers, principals, and mashpiyam, we are counting on you to help us stay afloat and to help us see the beauty of Yiddishkeit and Chassidishkeit. Okay. So there's many ways to approach this and many points to make. First of all, what can be said to the children, to the struggling teens, what can be said to their parents, to their friends, and of course to the schools and educators and teachers. So I want to begin by, number one, referring you to episodes 697 and 212, where I've discussed challenges teenagers face and unique teenager issues and their particular personalities. Now, everything I say is always qualified by the fact that case by case, because you can only say that much in a a group setting, meaning speaking to many different people without knowing all the details. Let's first eliminate some of the negative and, and, and unhealthy approaches, which unfortunately are very much part of every community. And that is to go um, with, with, press the panic button and begin a witch hunt or try to excommunicate or throw out children who are dealing with these challenges. They just, it just simply doesn't work. It does not work. Uh, there's, of course, the suggestions of putting up filters or altogether not allowing your children or teenagers to have smartphones and not allow them to go to social media. If that's doable, by all means, but I don't think it's practical because in most cases, once they're already teens, you're not going to really be able to control it. They go to their friends and they could always end up lying and not telling you what they're doing. So these are all we call pre, these are called the defensive measures. The most important thing is offensive, and I want to address it from two different angles. One is offense, how to prevent and preempt as much as possible these challenges. And number two, what to do once you're already in the situation. And I will speak, what I'm going to be saying is hopefully for all the different categories, the teenagers themselves, 
their parents, their friends, and uh, educators. But I think it's most important is to realize what exactly is going on when you understand the soul of a teenager, understand the challenges they face. And most importantly, it's not judgment, but really how to understand them and how to fill this void, which is an accurate word to use here, how to fill the void and, and fill it for positive things. I will read a few th- comments I did see on the article that just struck me and worthwhile reading briefly. And that is, number one, where one person writes, am I the only one looking at it from a different perspective? If our kids, I'm a mother of four teenagers plus that have gone through the system, had healthy outlets and things to do to develop, to develop their ta- talents in a significant way, they wouldn't need all this. There's a vacuum here that can be filled with what teens are passionate about. It could be photography, video editing, hobbies such as music learning, an instrument, baking, new and fancy confections, sports, yes, sports, fashion, graphic design, dance classes, aerobics, etc. If kids had an outlet for their energy and interest they want to develop and a place to develop their interests, all this would be on the back burner, not the front. One more idea, teens can be busy with a cause. It can be a world cause, an idea like a charity water a Jewish cause, or a particular shlichus they want to help expand. They should be in charge because they can. We underestimate the resourcefulness and strength of teens. I saw once a child making and donating stuffed animals to hospital patients. The possibilities are endless. Teens have almost unlimited energy that needs to go somewhere. Someone else writes regarding the filters for the phones. To all those that are instinctively reacting with we need filters and banned smartphone comments, while your intentions are pure, you're just pushing off the inevitable. There's exposure else everywhere. What's needed is the realization that today there are no walls we can hide behind. And it's time we give our teens the real deal, a mature and developed understanding of Yiddishkeit empowered by a passionate relationship with Hashem. And perhaps most importantly, open and honest discussions while creating an environment that embraces it. Instead of falling into despair over the situation, let's view the stage as a major step on the path towards an era of spiritual awakening. And one more I want to read and then I will weigh in. The internet is not the problem and filters are not the solution. The physical and emotional attraction to opposite gender is not the problem and zero interaction, interaction is not the solution. The world is full of options. How and what one chooses from the options is key. Internet is simply a huge repository and reflection of information in life. Attraction and connection to another human is a built-in primal human drive. A healthy human thinks and considers before taking something to themselves as theirs. Parents and educators will do their job by teaching and showing how to think and act not what to think and do. Let's analyze what this is. Here's how you analyze. Here's how to research. Here's how to frame. Here's how to react to an impulse. Here's how to decide. Let's practice. And the child student will always be watching how the teacher-parent acts when not in active teaching mode as well. The tool of how to make an informed and thoughtful decision is the most important one in the toolbox. Calling things disgusting and schmutz is not educational. Explaining that the human mind is inquisitive and creative and the human psyche and body is naturally hungry and what the purpose and benefits of having such drive are is educational, awareness of the powers one has and ways they can be used constructively and destructively. And then show, show trust in the child student that they can make good decisions. And alpidarke, chanechlan alpidarke, reward for good decisions. But trying to label humans' drives as ugly and amputating parts of the psyche to prevent bad choices is perhaps reflective and a projection of an insecurity of the teacher and parent. Teach how to fish so they can feed themselves. And one more, this seems to be a student writing, I agree with, all, with you all the way. 
I really feel I can relate talking about the article. Unfortunately, the teachers in my school, majority of them come to school to teach, not to listen to their students' input, not to notice the students are having a hard time emotionally, etc. People need to be more caring, more attentive to others' needs. I am hurting a lot due to life experience. My teachers don't look out for me. I don't think they even notice how I'm actually feeling. My parents are also oblivious. Of course, they're on their phones. We need more listening ears, more perceptive eyes, more open hearts. This is the key to helping others. This is just a small selection. I wanted to read what people are saying. Now, I want to make sure to qualify this last statement is her experience. Uh, sounds like a her. And there's no question that their teachers and educators are very much care, and as, as well as parents. But it doesn't mean there's, if good is good, is best and is best. As good is good is better, not better. So let's begin with a few key things here. And I agree with many of the comments. Obviously, that's why I read them. But I think it's most important, and this is maybe the single most important that Chassidus teaches us, the value, the indispensable value, tayerkait, of a Yiddish neshama, that Hashem chose and sent to this world. How many times did the Rebbe say this in his sikhs? Tetzivus Hashem. I have no doubt, among the many reasons why the Rebbe established Tetzivus Hashem for children, and there are many reasons, including preempting many of the challenges that we would be facing in the modern world. Best defense is offense. In reinforcing, cultivating, nurturing the soul of a child. To do that, you have to understand and appreciate the value of the child. A child is not just a piece of meat. A child is a soul. Now, we are so busy that often, even good parents, and I include myself, we can be neglectful in this regard until there's trouble. So it's critical from day one, when God sends a child to this world, realizes it's a gift that God sent, and parents are the gardeners, gardeners, like a gardener's, to protect, to cultivate, to nurture, and yes, to weed the garden. But the earlier you begin by nourishing the neshama, and not just through entertaining them, and not just through trips, but understanding the value of your neshama that was sent here to fulfill a purpose in this world. The home permeated with purpose. And I'm not really just, I'm really just explaining what the Rebbe wanted of us. That we are all shluchim of Hashem to this world. We're not here to just survive and make a living and do a few mitzvahs or many mitzvahs. Our whole purpose of existence came down to do a favor perhaps for another. And maybe 70, 80 years and Hashem lives and wears and tears in order to do that favor. And in general, the idea of giving and serving. When children see that from the youngest age, that as they grow into teens, that is their modus operandi. That becomes their MO. That's the approach to things. Is this a guarantee? Absolutely not. But like the Rebbe speaks about mezuzah, the helmet. It's a helmet. The more you do that is proactive, the more preventive medicine it may be and will be. So having a very proactive, non-passive, but involved a relationship with Yiddishkeit, with Shabbos, with all the things that children do, what families do and children do, a seder that comes alive. You have guests at the table. They see a vibrant Yiddishkeit. They see a Yiddishkeit that excites them, that challenges them, that brings out their best qualities and their talents. That, you guarantee, will be less of a void as the hormones begin to develop in, in puberty and they start developing into teenagers. Now, it's natural. As one of the writers writes, of course, boys and girls will be attracted to each other. That's how it is. That's why they marry, and they build beautiful families. So the key is not looking at, oh, terrible, terrible, understanding that that also is part of the shlichus. 
and explain to children, as I've discussed a number of times, how you speak about Sneas and about Taras Mishpach and other things, even in earlier years. I don't mean babies. At the ages when they begin to understand. All with a positive attitude that we are messengers of God in this world. The best defense is offense. The more you are an influencer of others, the less you will be influenced by others. So when that time comes and these challenges are presented, and there will be challenges, you have a lot more you're armed with it. Now this is the Derech Arucha Ketzara. This is called the long short road. You're pre- pre- preempting by creating this approach to life. And it has to be in a healthy way. If parents aren't sure, go check it out. Go talk to Mashpia. We have to have healthy attitudes here. Because the, the, the knee-jerk reaction is to right away, you see a problem? Okay, punishment. Forbid it. But a child wants to read a book. They may end up writing a book you don't like. So what are you going to do? Ban all books? No. You teach them why they're here. Why the Nisham is here. Every morning, every evening, before you, when a child wakes up in the morning, goes to sleep at night, they should know the Nisham is just returned to them. Nisham is before they go to sleep. And explain what it means in simple terms. You have a beautiful soul, and the soul has to express itself with its beautiful and unique way through your unique skills and your unique tools, and I'm here to support you in every possible way. This has to become a second nature of every child's mind and emotions. So when they look, they immediately say they see somebody comes into their home, they say hello, instead of being selfish and self-absorbed, they're always in a giving mode, in a healthy way, in a balanced way. Then you have yourself a person who sees their life driven by that, from the youngest of age. And that's why the Rebbe said, Tzivus Hashem, and, and reward them for those efforts. Always that proactive approach, which is critical today, because defense is almost impossible to fight because of all the challenges and all the forces that are inundating us. Of course, as children grow into teens, this has to become even more active and more aggressive. And reward. Do not wait till there's a problem. Do it in a way. Fill the void before there's a void. Fill their lives with a passion. And yes, look for their talents, whether it's in music, whether it's in sports, whether it's in writing, whether it's in graphics, whether it's creative things. And reward them for it. Encourage them. Because when children develop a passion in something, they will not need an outlet of that passion in places that can end up being somewhat destructive. Again, guarantee not, but it's gonna, it creates much more less risk and much more potential possibility that everything will be fine. Now, let's deal with that issue. Now, let me just say this. Whether it's for the teenagers themselves, or as the parents, or the educators, or friends, all of us have to join together in that partnership and help the children in this fashion. So it's a job, everybody. It's a partnership. To say it's only the parents, to say it's only the school, it's only friends, it's only the children themselves, no. Now, what about the situation you're writing already? Writing about a situation that is already happening. It's on the ground. So now this needs a little more sensitive approach because case by case, I think the same attitude has to be taken. If you see something like that, instead of scolding or reprimanding or demeaning, because remember, children are good people. They may have gotten themselves in trouble. They're like, you know, it's fun to talk to the opposite gender. It's even forbidden in a way. And Mayim Gnuvim Mitoko, people like the forbidden. So how do you address it? You address it by, instead of talking directly, don't do this, don't do that, start filling the void now. Try to find something that they enjoy. Take them somewhere. You know, they already may be caught up, but now also a good opportunity to talk about the relationships. 
They're already talking to the opposite gender, and you know they're involved with that. Talk about that. And this is both schools, at home, friends. Let's create an environment where you can talk. You don't have to be ashamed. And you know that you'll be not judgmental. You won't be judged. Children will respond to that. Speak healthy. What is sexuality? What is intimacy? What is a relationship? Why are men and women drawn to each other? And not in the terms of risks, who knows what could happen. But on the contrary, to show that God created a natural attraction and even a casual interaction is deeper than just casual. Precisely because it's so powerful, in a good way, in a beautiful way. Show what a relationship means, commitment in a relationship. It's more than just fun. And it's also fun. And explain how things are done in its time. Every teenager, if you can have a positive experience, discussion about it, will engage in such a discussion because they are themselves, they're themselves intrigued by the mechanics of it, by the chemistry, so-called, of a relationship. Always with a positive and healthy approach. Unfortunately, I'm sad to say, but some of our parents and some of our educators are not that healthy, and they're not good role models. Well, you know what? When it comes to things of pekuach nefesh, you have to speak bluntly, so maybe they're not the ones to do this. And if you really care about your children, you can't always feel like you're right. Maybe you should get objective advice. Sometimes parents with good intentions are doing the worst possible thing to make it a lot worse, to alienate their children. So it's a big topic, and I will talk more about it. I just thought appropriate to begin before Shavuos, because as we go to Mount Tea, that's what we want to assure, that our teenagers and our children and our teenagers will be standing by Mount Tea, and not just forced because parents are schlepping them to shul, but standing with a passion. Try to, how do we explain to them why they should come to Mount Tate on their own, to this shvuas? And what are they hearing there? Most people, Ten Commandments, I heard already many times, it's boring, I have other things to do. So they may do it out of obligation or guilt or because whatever, fear. But you, that, that's exactly the challenge. So how do you explain it? Because Mount Tate gives you, young man, young woman, the power to change the world. As I spoke on my opening uh, dialogue, my opening monologue, I should say. That what? It gives you the power to actualize your skills and actually change your corner of the world. This is what we need to teach them. That's just one example and many others that we can use to explain why Matanteda is so important. If you can't explain why it's important and why it's passionate, what do you think they're going to run to? The things that they think are important and passionate about. That is our challenge. And Simaslev. This is not happening overnight. It's not happening if, as, if, as a hobby or five minutes that you give to this. This has to be, you have to apply yourself to it. Apply yourself to the child and care and think about it and talk to, uh, to, to, to the parents to talk to each other, talk to experts, talk to others and understand, identify the dynamics going on in their child's life. You can't imagine how much every child yearns, even though they don't have the words and they don't know how to ask for it, for the nurturing, for the watering of their inner flower, of their inner angel, of their soul. Because there's nothing stronger, more powerful than when a person knows that you care about their neshama, you care about their lives. And not just on your terms and by your rules, but on the contrary, how these, these mitzvahs and the teda are meant to help actualize the deepest parts of who you are. As I said, I will talk some more about this, and I will continue. I'd love to get your feedback and comments. It's important, dealing with the whole generation. And... Um, Let's go to another topic, and that is how to deal with religious OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. This is, this is almost a follow-up question to a previous episode 
referring to last week's episode, but with additional details. My wife has very serious religious OCD, being obsessed and compulsive, specifically regards to Taras HaMishpacha. Although she's spoken to many therapists and Rabbonim, she continues to feel that she's never really tar, pure. And therefore, for the most part, we have zero intimacy. She's otherwise a good wife and mother to our two children. The, o- the OCD started with our second child when, after our second child was born and has continually gotten worse over the last six years. What would you say to such a situation? Feel free to answer this question publicly if you think people would benefit from hearing the topic of religious OCD discussed or if you're able to call me to discuss it. Thank you. Yeah, I chose to obviously read it because this is relevant to many people. There are a few notes from the Rebbe where he talks about OCD or similar obsessions. Remember, obsession is an obsession. Compulsive is more that you don't think, you just react immediately without anything. So some people are obsessive and not compulsive. Some are compulsive and not obsessive. But often it comes together. So here's the key thing to remember. Why is anybody obsessed with anything? So it's often due to their own issues, either their insecurities or because they fixate on things to give themselves some form of comfort or to relieve some pain or some void or some trauma. But when it comes to Yiddishkeit, and here's the key, why do we keep mitzvahs? Why do we do teir? Why do we keep taras mishpach? Because Hashem said so. So Hashem said how to do it, what to do, and what not to do. So the first thing you have to tell somebody, if you're doing something that Hashem says, then do it the way God says. The Gemara in Yerushalmi says. It's enough what God forbade, forbade you to do. That's why it speaks about a nazir. You don't have to add and make a nedir and take a vow to do more. We know the Torah says, there's a, a mitzvah that says, Do not add mitzvahs and do not subtract mitzvahs. So the question is asked, um, why, what's the problem with adding? Subtracting, we understand. You can't go ahead and take off a mitzvah, God forbid. But someone wants to add us another mitzvah, another 248 positive, a 249th. Zerim and Motar, it speaks about. Zerim is Reish Mem Zayin, one less than Amach, and Motar is Reish Mem Tes. So we say we're supposed to protect ourselves from Zerim and Motar, Sukkis. Why? Because both taking off a mitzvah and adding is also, why adding? Because if you become a partner and you decide, you decide you're going to add, then tomorrow you become a partner with God and say, I can subtract. So the first thing is Kabbalah sale. We go to Matan Teda. Nasavanishma. Nasavanishma, yes, says even if you're not in the mood, you do. And then later you try to understand. But Nasavanishma also says you do what God says, not what you want. And I've tried this a number of times on people who have this OCD. And they refuse to accept it. And they say, so it's not about God, it's about you. So why is that different than someone who subtracts? So it's just an approach to take. Now, what to actually say to your wife you have to try whatever it takes. But that's one angle. In a very, again, not judgmental way, not a critical way. Just simply stating, stating for the record. Hashem tells us what to do. He doesn't tell us what to do more. doesn't tell us less. There's a precise method. And when you do more, just, it can be just as destructive as when you do less. Now, of course, it's going to be if the person you're speaking about actually has an OCD situation, most likely will not listen to this. They'll say, yeah, but I feel I need to do this whatever, it's a tikkun, or this is what I think God wants of me. So their self-absorption is the issue here. And there's no Kabbalah sale. So maybe a mashpia could help. I would definitely, a husband 
the spouse should not be the mashpia, should not be the rov, and try to get the person, if they have a chsiddishkeit to them, and they have a bitl to the rebbe, to the teda, to the ebishter, then you could maybe use that and say, if you have bitl, let's see what the ebishter says. What does the rebbe say about this matter? And that is an approach that can work, doesn't always work, but it's an approach. In general, however, the general approach with OCD is, is uh, divide and conquer. Very hard to just, just stop the whole thing. You help people by monitoring. Either take, writing a journal and saying, okay, you don't have to wash your hands 50 times. Same thing with Tyler and Spock, you don't have to do it that many times. These are the guidelines. And you monitor the, the, yourself. But it also has a lot to do with how your wife, how aware she is. If she's completely unaware of this and she thinks everything is perfectly normal, it's one approach. If she is aware, it's easier, obviously, to work with. So these are some of the variables. You can feel free to write to me and contact me if you want to speak about some more details because, again, I don't know the, all the details, so it's hard for me to say add more than what I've said. Next question. Are we sure that everyone has a soulmate? Are you sure everyone has a soulmate? I've never met mine, and I'm already middle-aged. Thank you for your ongoing inspiration. The writer writes, referring to the series that you gave, Six Keys to Finding Your Soulmate. Yeah, that's on our website, MeaningfulLife.com, with a lot, a lot of context, content that even is outside of my life, that, but often relates to many of the topics we speak about here. So, very good question. Look, we don't know God's mysterious ways. We only know what God told us. He told us in the Torah the following, that he wanted to create a human being, B'Tselem Elikim, B'Tselmenu Kidmuseinu, Zoche V'Nikeva Bora Esam. He created them, Male and female, usually understood as an androgynous creature. Then split them into two, the Nesira, and that's why they both look for each other. Alkain Yazev Odom is basically that's why a man will leave his home. And the same you could say about a woman, they will leave their comfort zone in order to find the second half, what we call the soulmate, Plagufa, the second half. As we've discussed many times, it doesn't mean that you're not complete without it, but you're not fully complete. Transcendence can only be possible when they reconnect with each other, and that's the source of their attraction, and they reconnect and re- become one again with their divine image in which they were created, Zohar and cave. So based on that, you can assume every human being on earth has a soulmate. That's how we were created. Does God have exceptions? And some people may, for whatever reason, in this Gilgal, in this reincarnation, not have one? Everything is possible, but we can't assume that. Unless God literally told somebody. The fact that we have don't find the diff- what we find it difficult, we know Kasha Zivugan Kakriyas Yamsuf. Shidduch is uh, finding your soulmate is as difficult as parting of the sea, even though it's two halves of one whole. It's not a contradiction. So we know it's difficult. For some people, give up. That doesn't mean you don't have one, it means that, that uh, you, you've given up. The, the fact that someone has not found someone, even at middle age, does not mean there's no soulmate. It could be you've met the soulmate and for whatever reason have not appreciated it. There are people I know meet their soulmates and then whatever, they're so distracted. And years later they come to realize it and I've seen this happen. Many ways to explain it. But to go and assume that one doesn't have a soulmate because I didn't find one is suggesting that you absolutely did everything possible. And the only thing missing is that there is no soulmate. So you cannot make such a statement based on the facts on the ground. Now, is it always possible? As I said, everything is possible. We don't know God's mysterious ways, just like we don't understand why, God forbid, sometimes a person dies prematurely in a marriage and there's a second marriage, or other things that happen, the marriage does not work out. Again, there's human error in most cases, 
But God's mysterious plans, it's very hard to say. And that's why I don't want to speculate. All we can talk about is what we can do. And what we have to do is not leave any stone unturned in finding our shidduch. And sometimes looking and realizing we have blind spots and you need advice from an objective person who can help you look beyond and ways that you may not even have noticed or maybe realize that you're looking for the wrong thing or you're putting up impediments or you're making it impossible by simply nixing and second-guessing everything that comes your way, especially when it gets too close for comfort. You know, we have many emotional issues and people have insecurities and fears of commitment. That also has to be looked at with a whole list of the usual suspects. Okay. Another question. These are two questions, which actually both questions are came in lately, a bunch of them, so I'm going to read them, but I did speak about it, so I'll refer you right straight to exactly these questions. How do you educate children about intimacy? I alluded, I referred to it earlier when speaking about the teenagers. I'm a shluch in a city in France, Baruch Hashem, in our city we also have a nice number of Lubavitch Anash. I'm writing to you for advice and guidance on a sensitive subject, which you have most probably dealt with many times, but for us it's our first in our 30 years of shluchus. The Chabad mothers have come to me to ask me how to make an evening on educating our children first on what is marital relations of husband and wife before they, found out by the, before they find out by themselves through friends and internet. They're referring to ages 10, 11, 12 plus. I understand, I understand that this is a very important issue, yet I'm really unsure how to go about this. I hope you can help me out. Thank you in advance. Absolutely, this question, direct question, and I, and I believe I said this earlier, are episodes 8, 59, and 160. In addition to the, the episodes I mentioned earlier. Again, episodes 8, 59, and 160. I don't, I'm not going to repeat myself because it's all there. Just simply go there. They're all time-stamped. You can actually find in the YouTube version of the video the actual place. You could just listen straight on this topic. Another similar question, not similar on this topic, but a question that I've addressed a number of times, is Tanya, we just learned Tanya chapter 49, wife and children versus serving Hashem. How do we explain the words in Tanya that one has to let go of everything, including wife and children, for God? In Pedic Memtes, same thing in the Gedis Simin Yud And one more place in Tanya. Dear Rabbi, how do we understand the idea of abandoning everything for God's sake, even wife and children, in practical Aveda? See Tanya in English, Falag Chitas. I know you recently discussed it and used the word submit as stated by the Rebbe, instead of surrender. I feel that, actually, yeah, I don't recall, okay. I feel that family is the primary place of a connection to God, like loving and raising a child, the most sacred task. How do these feelings jive together? Sorry, hard for me to really understand. What two thoughts do I need? What two thoughts do I need to keep in my head? Maybe just need a simpler explanation. Thanks, sincerely. Another writer writes, in Tanya last week, the Alta Rebbe writes, one must let go of everything, including his money, wife, and kids, that they should disturb him from serving Hashem. A question which comes up many times, myself and between friends, when we fabring, is what to do when the wife needs you and you want to go to a minion. And if you go there, and you go there, isn't another minion, you don't live in Crown Heights or Borough Park. Or you want to go to a class, etc. The list goes on. When do I know if it's the right thing to go to a class or to the minion, and when is the right time to stay home and how to address it to the wife? As well as to myself, minion, or of, for instance, is very important for me. So how can I forgive myself from going to minion, convincing myself that this is what Hashem wants for me now, to be with my wife and not dive with a minion today? Thank you very much for your assistance. I love your articles and classes. You're a great inspiration. So let me just say 
briefly, and then I'll refer you to the episodes. I discussed this directly at length. Episodes 143 and 190. But the al obviously is not saying, we have a mitzvah of shenantim levanech, educating our children. And we have obligations to our wives. Real obligations. They're not just to be done uh, like a second thought. So the Alter Rebbe is clearly not addressing that issue that to ignore family and wife and children. His question, is, like, we, like I discussed, is why you do it with your wife and children? Is it simply for your own biological reasons? Or is it because it is, that itself is serving Hashem? So go to episodes 140 and 190 and it's very clear that it cannot be a contradiction. Alter Rebbe is not, God forbid, suggesting anyone should neglect wife and children and family to serve God because that itself is the greatest way of serving God. Shalom bias is greater than all the mitzvahs as the Alter Rambam Paskins. That's why Yim Cheshmer, the Ebershah says, even erase my name for Shalom Bayis. So episodes 140 and 190. Now, follow-up. Some follow-up, then we'll do the Chassidus question, and then we'll do the essays. Giving years to the Rebbe, this was last week's episode, so I neglected to mention, which I should have, Dveda Lei, the daughter of the Alter Rebbe, giving her life for the Alter Rebbe. As we know the story, that Dveda Lei heard and sensed then Bezdin Shalmaila, they decided Alta Rebbe was prematurely going to pass away. She called in a Bezdin, and she said secretly, and she said, I want to give my life for my father. They reluctantly agreed, and that's what happened. And then, of course, before she passed away, she asked Alta Rebbe to take care of her son, which he did. So that's another example of the, what we spoke about giving. Here it's more than just giving years. She actually gave her life. But I wanted to mention it just for the full picture. Good. Another topic we spoke about in episode 212, a follow-up. I mentioned the story of Beryl Yunik about giving years to the Rebbe. And uh, so one writer writes, you're in trouble. <laughs> I like the, the subject line. It got my attention. But I, I mentioned Beryl Yunik. Rabbi Yunik was, was a maskir. And I mentioned that he was just to pour the, the, the bracha and fill the Rebbe's cup. So this, I stand corrected. The writer corrects. Melyon was a mishamish, but kedush nit maskir. Mishamish bekedush means he was an assistant to the rebbe, not a maskir per se, a secretary. I'm not sure what the difference would be, but let's say that. And that, in other words, wasn't an office work secretary. It was more personal. He took over after Rabbi Mentlik was nifter. Otherwise, very good. Um, which means, opposite of what I said, I incorrectly said that he would pour the cup, and then when he passed away, Rabbi Mentlik started, it was the opposite. Rabbi Mentlik would fill the Rebbe's cup with wine for Kiddush, and then also refill it throughout Keshul Bracha, when the Rebbe would pour Keshul Bracha at the end of Yom Tov, three times a year, usually, sometimes more. And uh, when Rabbi Mentlik passed away, that's when Rabbi Junik took over, correct. Regarding blessings on trees... This was back in episode 209, so someone writes, thank you, in response to my request for any information. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, as per your request in episode 209, when addressing the question of why don't we see chassidim being scrupulous about going out of their way to make a blessing on trees, to provide you with an available resources as if we know of any time that the Rebbe made the bracha on trees. I bring, you to the fo- I bring your attention to the following from the Sefer Maisa Melech, page 178. Quote, the Rebbe would make the bracha from his room office on the tree near the window, even though there was only one fruit tree, cherries, and some other trees with flowers, but fruitless. In footnote number seven, they write there, some years on the way home, the Rebbe had the custom of reciting the blessing on a tree on the parkway of Eastern Parkway. One year when the Rebbe left 770 and saw that the tree blossomed, he made his way back to get a siddur in order to make a bracha on it. 
Okay. So thank you for that. Absolutely. I don't believe it was every year because I believe there were years I think we saw that that didn't happen, but you never know that ever could have done things without seeing in his own at home and so on. But this is very helpful. Stam, this person writes, just some, not sure if reliable, prove that the Rebbe indeed made the bracha on the tree, if not many, some years. But it doesn't contradict your point that there's no point in going after and pursuing a tree to perform this mitzvah, as you explained in the above-mentioned episode and its follow-ups. A gracious for everything, call tooth. Okay, uh, two more follow-ups. One is on intimacy. Again, we spoke about last week's episode 212. In last week's 212 episode, someone was saying that her husband wasn't being intimate with her and you said she should get a third party involved. Well, I said a lot more than that, but let's see what you're writing. While it's very important to always have someone to talk to when things are not working out, however, first a couple should try to work it out themselves. Couples have to be very open with one another when it comes to their relationship, even and more so with regards to their intimate life. If, for example, it is bothering the spouse the way her husband always lives, leaves the top off the toothpaste, she should tell him. Then definitely when it comes to something which is so much more important and something which is negaya to their marriage and affects both of them, they need to talk about it with one another. It might be very uncomfortable to bring it up, but after you bring it up, it will all be worth it. I totally agree. I don't remember the exact words I said, but I hardly doubt that I just said go to a third party. That was when you can't address it between the two of you, either because it's not working out and you're just getting into an argument, or the person is too sensitive, then you may need a mashpia to be able to, a trusting person, to broach it to maybe easier. But absolutely, the first step is always to talk to each other and try to resolve. That's the first step always. So, agreed. And finally, one more follow-up. Healthy interaction with the opposite gender. This topic seems to be coming up again and again. I talked about that last week, about regular interaction about teenagers. We, interesting that we're talking about it now again in a bigger context. So a person writes, Hi, I would just like to add to what you said that you can also differentiate between socializing and regular interaction. I was always told that socializing is a problem with the opposite gender, but regular interaction is fine. In other words, to be adamant and just go crazy and be obsessive and ignore somebody is obviously not healthy. And then somebody thanks. And somebody, in, in addition to that, actually cites a letter from the Rebbe, Chav Beis Kislev Tavshin Yudzayin, where the Rebbe actually writes in Hebrew, and I'll translate, in response to your letter from Tov Kislev, that's Yudzayin Kislev, which you write about that you're drawn and you feel something, meaning for the opposite gender. We know the Eitzes in such situations, and they are basically to distract yourself intensely from meeting the other person as much as possible. Move on, the Rebbe says, however, to do this in a very um, blatant way is not at all uh, uh, acceptable or all, all positive. And to live a family life, like all people on the earth, without additional severities or uh, stringencies, that don't have any foundation, or abstinence, that only leads to opposite results. So clearly saying with moderation, not doing it in an over-extreme way. From this is understood that leaving your home, from your home, leaving for some while from your house, not only is that not a tikkun, to repair this, the opposite. It's going to only cause more problem because you're going with an extreme the other way, the kalahoven, and it's easy to understand. 
So this is, if anybody wants a quote from this letter, please send an email to us with your email address at meaningfullife.com slash mylife. I'd be happy to send it to you. Let us now go to the Chassidus question of the week. Okay. And that is as follows. Atzmus muhus. That's an expression used in Chassidus on the essence. Atzmus means the essence, and muhus means the core essence, you can say, on, on, on the highest levels of the divine. So the questioner asks, I see in many places it says, Atzmus muhus erein sof. If you can't describe Atzmus, how can we say it's erein sof? Okay, very good question. So let's first talk about these expressions because they, they're sometimes misunderstood. In Chassidus, you have expressions like Atzmus muhus ein sof, Atzmus muhus yizbarach, muhus yizbarach, Atzumo yizbarach, which is Rosh Hatevis of that, and that's the highest level the Alter Rebbe uses in the Gersa Kedush Simachov and in some Maimorim, many Maimorim, and obviously in the other Maimorim that follow in the generations following. Referring to the highest levels, we always have to know the Shachich Esa'ezin is an expression in Eitz Chaim in a number of places, that sometimes we use an expression only for the air, because we have to say something. So when you really say Atzmus Mohus in the highest levels, you're really talking about something that doesn't have any name. Even in Neichi you say, Le'isram is Le'bishumais, Le'bishumkates. That has no name, because any name is a definition and a description. And it's not even hinted, Le'bishumais, not even a letter, and Le'bishumkates, even in a, in, in, the, in a point, on top of the letter. And definitely when you're talking about Atzmus Mohus, is beyond any type of description. Yet, we have to use an expression, so we use that expression. Sometimes you'll hear the expression, Atzmus and Giluyim. Which, of course, Giluyim means expression of Atzmus. Atzmus is the core essence, which usually, when you talk about it, you reserve it in three, three words, three descriptions that are usually reserved only for Atzmus Mohus. One is Mitzias, built in Mitzias Nimtza, an existence that's a non-existential existence. It means he exists, but not like anything else exists. Number two is Mechuyi Vametzias, he must exist. And number three, Metziusi Matzmusi. That his existence comes from within himself, as the Alter Rebbe says in that again, Giluim is even the highest, highest levels, means already expression. God shows to express himself, reveal himself. The highest levels is Eir. Eir Akol Be'etzem, Batzmusi, Kadmun Kadmusi, in Samavov, brings that, that Eir is so bottled. To the source, though, though it's expression, but it's an expression that's completely within the source. So within the source, you're already beginning to have the, the potential, the yecheles, for a gilui. That would be called atzmus muhus eirein sof. The core and essence of eirein sof. Or eirein sof shall atzmus muhus. Both are legitimate expressions. So as soon as you say eirein sof, you're not talking about atzmus muhus in its purest form. You're talking about it's me'en hamoy. It expresses the, the core. And it, because it's so sublimated and subjugated to the core and has no metzius of its own, it can even carry the metzius of the core, as he explains in the Geras HaKedosh, but it's still Eir and Sof, so you're already in a form of existential. You don't call it built in metzius nimtza, even though it can carry it, but it's a metzius nimtza and a gili. In Teir Sholem, interestingly, page 147, the Sikha of Simchas Teir Terav, I think, yeah, Simchas Teir Tofre Shaim Beis. The Rebbe Rashab says like this: We don't speak about mamish atzmus. 
everywhere where Chassidus talks about atzmos, the intention is Shmoy Ha'atzmi. So Shmoy is already, Shmoy is already his name, somewhat of a reflection. A high is, but Shmoy Ha'atzmi. It's not a specific name, it's the core name, it's a high name that's higher than even letters, and so on. The Kabbalah, in Kabbalah, doesn't even speak about Shmoy Ha'atzmi. Speaks about the core name, but not Atmos itself. And then he goes on about There was not Nikar, and, and, and the details that you can look up there on page one forty-seven. The Sicha Simchas Teda Terav. So that adds to the point. So bottom line is like this: Atmos you can't say anything. No Tayar. It's not Shlila Sachiyu Vishlila Sashlila Vishlila Sashlila. As he, as he says in Samarvov and Asanayim Beis and some other places. You can't even bring any type, you can't even define, you can't say it's not even a definition. It's not definition, it's not not definition, it's not not definition. That's the bottom line. Once you get into Eir, we start talking about levels, obviously everything is relative, it's levels of what's going to emerge from there, as the Rebbe explains in a famous letter in Tavshin Tess, printed in the Hesophis, Lukutisichas, Chelek Tezvov. We've talked about this as well in Prast in the previous episodes about how their levels before the tzimtzum. So I hope that clarifies that. Let us now go to the essays, three essays, two in English, one in Hebrew. The first one is chassidus, polarization, and the opioid, opioid crisis. Avram Karp, age 22, Spring Valley, New York. Works at Darche Menachem. Okay. A relevant topic, unfortunately. People are dying in record numbers, he writes. From 1995 to 2015, over 516,000 people died of drug overdoses, most of of these from opioid-derived drugs. Opioids are drugs extracted from the poppy plant. And he goes on to speak about the different political gridlock of dealing with this. While conservatives maintain that drug users should face harsh penalties, they also advocate that drug criminalization laws be enforced as a social deterrent. And then goes on to conversely the liberal positions that be decriminalized. As people continue dying, the question remains, how can we stop fighting each other for long enough to find a solution to this crisis? And goes on to say, in order to solve our issue, we must first understand as to why these positions are an inevitable part of our makeup as a society from both a psychological and Hasidic perspective. We must also examine why is it that both conservatives and liberals find it so difficult to come to consensus. Finally, we shall discuss what we can do to overcome our tendency to polarization to do this, we must first understand the Hasidic concept of the Sphiris and Seder Shtalsalus, the spiritual cosmos, as well as the personal connection to the Sphiris that we all possess. And goes on to do exactly that. Very creative, very original, and actually does an excellent analysis of the challenges. Obviously, there's no solutions overnight, but he goes through Chesed, Gvura, Teferis, in describing how we find the synthesis of Teferis in approaching anything, and then has practical steps of Teferis and Bittl, about how to address these issues in a way that we can also come find common ground. Okay, very good essay. And with that, we go to essay number two, and that is Chsidis, Revealing the True Me, by Yesef Yitzhak Marnetz, I hope I pronounced it right, age 29, Beitari Lit, Israel. His job is Rosh Hashiva G'day Tem Chetmimim Be'er Sheva. Okay. I'm always fascinated by the diversity of the writers, the places they come from, their type of work. Really interesting. Valdik, I should say. Okay. So we have now is, this is a Hebrew essay. Uh, my name's. So basically, 
how in our modern time people have lost their individuality within the group, within the community. And um, what you can do to rebuild in a healthy way the idea that every human being, every Jew is a Elam Shalom. It brings stories and explains in a beautiful way the uniqueness, the uniqueness of every individual. So even though we're living in a community and even though we're living in a society that puts a lot of pressure for conformity in others, we have the capacity to find that individuality. In addition to recognizing the value of every detail, even the most seemingly insignificant small detail of life and how to, of course, express all this. So each piece he brings into a action and exercises how to implement it. Another very good, well-done essay, well-annotated. Thank you for that. And finally, third essay is Overcoming Technology Addiction. Yisrael Cutler, age 36, Cary, North Carolina, Chabad of Cary. Extremely relevant, of course, as well. The, the shallows, what the internet is doing to our brains, distraction trap, how to focus on a digital, in a digital world, you are not a gadget. The marketplace is now flooded with books such as these that address a new societal problem. Where information is so accessible, in the world where information is so accessible, we understand less. In a time of relative comfort, free from many of the disturbances our ancestors faced, we are distracted more. In an era where, there's so many tasks, where so many tasks are now automated, we are busier than ever. In an age of endless means of communication, we connect less to each other. While the problem is simple, the solution is not. This essay will explain how we can harness the power of das, das, concentration to both identify and resolve a problem that afflicts so many of us. When knowing the information is only step one, it speaks about Chabad, Chachma, Bina, Das, how Das has achieved the three I's, intimacy, identification, and integration, speaks about what technology does to our brains in this regard of identity, intimacy, identification, and integration. The unique role of Das, and particularly as a chassid. And we continue speaking about how to actually implement Das, setting aside time to unplug periodically, switching off notifications, monitoring just how often you check your phone, using a non-smartphone, at least some of the time, limiting multitasking. Excellent essay. Talking about embracing quiet time, recognizing that less is more. Is this a das moment? So, using the concept of das and applying it to the distractions and the over inundation and overstimulation of our senses today is a great way of taking this issue that we all struggle and deal with. And there we have the essays. So, let me wish everybody that the expression that the Fidika Rebbe used and the Rebbe repeated many times and explained it Kabbalah Satayra Bissimche Ubeprimius. That you should have both a joyous and an internalized Matan Teda. Obviously, there won't be a program next Sunday because it's Yom Tif. We will resume in two weeks, 8 to 9 p.m. This has been My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 213. Everyone of starts with the this week as we get closer and come to the point, that historical moment when we recreate that which happened 3,330 years ago, the joining of heaven and earth preparing the world for the Gu'ula and to make sure that all men, women, and children, even the youngest, should be attend the Ten Commandments, Aser Sadibris in Ashul, possible wherever you are in the world. Everyone have a very good Yontif, and it's always an honor and pleasure, and we'll see you in two weeks.
Be well.